Welcome, everybody, to church. I know this is not your normal church. <gasps> Good news! We're going to have church soon. We'll have church. Uh, it'll be uh, in mid-June. We're going to start planning on having church. It's going to be a little five people per service, so we'll have two services. One service will be at 10, and the other service will be at noon. And uh, we'll be sending around sign-ups for that. And uh, also... We're going to need to have uh, people working on the uh, the sanit. I shouldn't call the san. Yeah, the sanitation team. What they will do is they'll disinfect all the uh, surfaces. So, what we need from you is to know what service you would come to if the when the services start. Would you come to the ten o'clock in the morning service or would you come to the noon service? Also, would you uh, want the man ma masks? to be mandatory, or do you want to um, make them optional? So let us know what service you're coming to and what your position is on masks, okay? That should come, we should have our first service maybe June 15th, but we're not exactly sure, so don't quote me on that, but that's just a target date. Okay, something else is going on, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have a prayer meeting every Thursday. The on Zoom. 
And Sue sends out an email every Tuesday and Thursday with the information. So if you have Zoom, you can come to our prayer meeting at 7. It'll start, it starts at 7.30, but that's the unofficial start of the prayer meeting because we are, we socialize. We love to talk to each other and catch up and see how folks are doing. So from 7.30 until 8, we just chat. And then 8 o'clock is when the official prayer starts, and it is over at 8.30. So Thursday uh, is what time the prayer meeting is, and we'd love to see you there. All other good news is the pastoral search team. They've narrowed down their uh, list of candidates down to six, and those six people are being interviewed. Presently, they've gotten through four. So we've only got a couple more interviews to do, and then they're going to have to whittle those six down to people that they will have a second interview. So let, um, keep having those people in, in your prayer because um, they have got a tough decision to make. The Lord knows who's, who's going to be here, but we certainly need to uh, seek the Lord's guidance on this so that we um, do what he has uh, in store for us. Okay. Last but not least, let us pray for the Augies. Um, you know, uh, we need to go ahead and lift them up in prayer. So I, right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for the offering, and I'm going to pray for also for the Augies, okay? Lord, you are so generous to us. You've gifted us with people. You've gifted us with a building. You've gifted us with love and compassion for one another. Lord, can you uh, bless this offering? Can you use it to glorify your name and make your name known throughout all of Hillsborough? Help us to do your will. Lord, God, lift up the Augies. Bring them comfort in their time of sorrow. I'm asking all of this that your son's name may be glorified forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So I'll be reading the scripture today, and the first passage is from Ephesians 3. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming by the way that you know God, gave, God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise and blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, has kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I will also be reading from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Abraham was humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that, was, but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous with, without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yet what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith, that God had already accepted him and declared him as righteous, even before he was circumcised. So Abraham, the spiritual father of those who have faith, but have not been circumcised. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Hello, Alliance Bible Church. My name is Doug. Um, Doug Diller. I've been here before. Thanks for letting me come back and talk with you. Um, as I said last time, I remind a few of you that I'm from Mosaic Church in uh, Northeast Portland. And i um, glad to be able to come back and talk with you guys again about, about Ephesians. As I had mentioned before, I have three daughters, and I still have those three daughters. They're still hanging around. I love to play soccer, and I love to eat pizza. So um, maybe after all this craziness is over, we can share pizza sometime, because I'd love to talk with some of you face-to-face, -face, as I haven't had that opportunity yet. So um, again, thanks for letting me come in here, and I understand that you guys are talking about Ephesians. So we're going to continue on with Ephesians 3, and I want to give you a little bit of 
another overview of some things with Ephesians in general is that basically Ephesians can be divided into two sections. And I hope you like my high-tech ability right now. Um, the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, is basically a history lesson. And what Paul is trying to do is establish that the Jews and the Gentiles um, are forming one church right now. That there isn't anything special or anything unique that Gentiles have to do to, to become part of this following of Jesus. And that sort of seems like a duh for us right now. We've, you know, 2,000 years later, we, we get that. Back then, it wasn't, wasn't top of mind, and it was a cause of confusion, some discussions, probably some angry moments. They weren't sure how to incorporate, they meaning the Jews, how to incorporate Gentiles in and what may or may not need to be done. And this is, these three chapters are basically Paul trying to say nothing. Nothing needs to be done specifically. You don't need anything different. He ends chapter three with the word amen. That's a pretty good indication that there's going to be a change coming up. And then he starts chapter four with the words, I therefore. So you get a nice transition between the first half and the second half. It's kind of a clear, clear transition and maybe overall themes that he's approaching. In the second half um, of Ephesians is basically how do we live? So Paul is talking about how he wants us to live as believers because we're all believers in Jesus. So that's a broader perspective, broader outline and framework for Ephesians. And I want <clears throat> to talk about Ephesians chapter 3 and specifically, um, well, specific, specifically all of chapter 3. But Ephesians chapter 3 can also be um, broken up into two parts. And the first part, what is interesting, or what was interesting to me, is this word mystery. This word mystery occurs um, five times, four times, four times in Ephesians chapter uh, three. And I'm just going to read to you chapter or verses two through six here. And it says, For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, meaning you, um, the Church of Ephesians, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I wrote about it in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery <clears throat> was not made known to humankind, and it has now been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, the apostles and prophets, and by the Spirit. That is, that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery here that Paul is talking about is that the Gentiles, Gentiles are now similar with Jew. Everybody is an heir um, of, of Jesus. And that was, that was, like I said earlier, that's kind of obvious to not for us now, but back then, it was a struggle. Um, it took some time for them to understand that. 
to get their grasp on it. They had several meetings. Um, I can't remember what the famous one is and what part I think it's in Acts. There's a kind of a famous meeting with a bunch of the leaders that, that talk about this very question. So it, it was a big deal back then. So we can understand Ephesians, written to the Ephesians, trying to sort out that problem. And it's really important when we read Scripture to, to say, what is Scripture trying to tell the people that it was written to? It was specifically written to the Ephesians. And there's a certain context and certain point that's happening there. And that's certainly what Paul is trying to get to for those Ephesians. Then trying to figure out what, what it means for us today or how we can apply that. And, and I'm sure that there are several other ways, but what has seemed most uh, prevalent or top of mind to applying this idea of basically, basically is, is the church open or closed? That's, that's what the Jews were trying to figure out. Is the church open to the not, to the non-Jews? Is it open to the Gentiles? Right. Um, or is it close to them? Do they have to do something different? And we are asking this question right now in a different way. We're asking it in the way, when are churches going to open again? When are we going to be allowed to come back into our building? So it's a little bit different than first century, but nonetheless, it's still a uh, question we're asking. And I'd like to say, and I think we all sort of know that in our gut, right? Um, that the church has never been closed. Right? The church is not closed now. It just happens that the church has moved outside of the buildings that we usually have because the church is, is the people. And, and we need to really remember that and watch our language when we start talking about is the church closed or open because the church has never been closed. And I think something we need to do is we need to stop asking that question. When's it going to open? When are we going to get back to normal? And we need to pray. And I'll say pray in a couple specific ways, simple yet specific ways. For most of history, or probably in fact all of history, there has been a part of the world, wherever it is, where it is illegal to be, be a Christian where people can't meet freely, where you can't talk freely about Jesus or about your faith. So in a sense, things are really closed there. Yet the church is still active. And knowing what many of you probably do know about church history, the church in China was closed, closed at one time, um, had a great uh, resurgence during that time. The fastest growing place I've heard right now for um, Christianity is Iraq. It's illegal. You can go to jail. Probably You can probably die there. Um, but it is the fastest growing place. So we need to stop asking the question, is the church closed? When are we going to be open? And we need to start praying for our brothers and our sisters that are experiencing what we're experiencing they don't have the freedom to meet in a building. At least we have the freedom to talk on Zoom and we can talk six feet apart. We can write emails. We can call ourselves on the phone. We can read books. There's lots of places, China, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Yemen, North Korea, 
Pakistan, Afghanistan, right? You get me? There's tons of places that are, are shut down in a sense, that the church is so underground. So every time we see an article, and I've been trying to do this, every time I see an article about when the church is going to reopen or whatever, I'm taking a minute to pray for our brothers and our sisters in these other countries that are facing really, really difficult things. And I'm not making it a long prayer. I'm just saying, God, help the brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Or Jesus, be with the believers in China. Super simple. Holy Spirit, encourage the believers in Afghanistan. Really simple. Also been taking a moment to be thankful and thanking God. Hey, thanks God that we have our freedoms here to express our beliefs, to talk freely. Simple. Eight seconds, six seconds to pray that. We take those moments that we see probably as you read the news every day, you're going to see an article or something about the church. Take six seconds or eight seconds and pray for our believers that are there. Pray for them and, and let's stop asking that question. Second half. Second half. All right. Um, this one uh, is, is interesting because the, it is basically a whole prayer. It's a, it's, Paul is giving, giving, um, a prayer. And I want to focus on a word here that comes up in the prayer, not a shocking or insignificant word, but in verse 17, it says, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. And when I first read it, um, I thought, oh, through faith, that's so fluffy and nice and, you know, cotton candy and unicorns sort of thing. Um, we think it's all warm and fuzzy with, with faith. And yet faith can be and is really rational. And I want to talk a little bit more about how I think Paul is encouraging us to have a rational side to our faith. And you might go, wait a minute, I don't get the rational side of faith. We can have blind faith. There can be blind faith where you have no evidence, no experience, and it is a blind faith. And there's all sorts of examples like that. Christianity, what Paul's asking us to do, and I think what a lot of you in your testimonies probably already have, is a rational side to your faith. There is something that that um, made sense to you logically. There's a guy named John Lennox, and uh, let me just read to you what he does. He's emeritus professor of mathematics, smart, at University of Oxford, smart, emeritus fellow in mathematics, smart, and philosophy, smart, uh, of science at Green Templeton College, again, smart, an associate fellow, fellow of the said by business school. Smart, right? Well-rounded guy, many disciplines. He's a believer. 
he says in here, um, can, can science explain everything? Because we typically have this view that science is the rational. Right? Science does not involve faith. There's no faith in science. Faith is bad. He says, um, the, point, the point is that scientific thought is rational. But rational thought is no means confined to the sciences. Good. Well, I think we can all buy off on that. No means confined to the sciences, or that, that science is rational. But he's making the argument that it's also doesn't have to be confined there. What will surprise some of my readers, but it shouldn't, is the fact that this kind of thinking is found to be everywhere in the Bible. That this kind of rational thinking is to be found everywhere in the Bible. So before I give you a couple examples of that, let, let's um, talk about an example of faith that isn't scientific. It's not in a laboratory. It's not test tube. It's not, it's not uh, proven. And I think we all have it. It's when we go out to start our car. C car. Um, we go out to start our car and we expect it to start. We get up do our deal, and we get in the car, and we go. If we didn't have faith that our car would start, we would get up, up out of bed, try to go down and start our car, and then keep it running. But our faith is really rational, because we know from past experiences, from yesterday, from the day before, from the mechanics, the way that we've taken care of our car, that our faith that our car is going to start in the morning. We have faith in that. That's a very rational, rational side to faith. And there's other examples we could think of. Again, there's a chair sitting over here in this room. Um, I can't prove that it's going to hold me, but it's very rational for me to think that it will hold me if I sit down in it. And that's, I'm, a, I'm including faith in that because it could just fall apart, right? There could be some sort of crack I didn't see, but I don't test it. I don't put it under a microscope and look for everything before I sit in it. I just sit down in the chair and it holds me. So that's a side of rational faith that we all have. And um, Paul has this kind of rational faith. And that's part of the reason why I had us read through Romans, Romans 4 through 5. Um, Whoever was reading scripture, I don't know who they were, but I had them read Romans. And Romans is a very rational laying out of Old Testament things that put together systematically to show that Jesus is the Messiah. It's very systematic and very logical. Also, um, great, great chapter in uh, Luke, Luke chapter 12. It says... Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Adds on mind here. If we're to love something with our mind, that means we need to understand it, and it has to be rational. And that's that's a great thing. That's that's great, and we need to embrace that a little bit more of um, this. So the word faith came out, and through this prayer and and. Is faith rational? Yes, faith is, faith is rational. There might be some things about it that are irrational, but faith is completely rational. And let me, I could tell you stories about myself, and I bet you some of you could, 
could tell stories about things that are rational for you. But I'm going to read, not read, I'm going to read you a story. I'm going to read you part of, part of the story. Um, and this is, um, there's a guy by the name of John Dickinson, PhD, again, in ancient history. All right. So what he did recently, um, ancient history, he's in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, yeah, another guy that has a few brain cells twisting up in here. And what he did was he, um, he said he published an article in the Australian, um, in the Australian Public Broadcast Association or whatever it is. And it said, and he said, if anyone can find just one full professor of ancient history, classic or New Testament in any real university. So an ancient history professor, an ancient or a New Testament professor, or an Old Testament professor, so three disciplines, sort of, not necessarily all believers. You can be a philosophy or understand the New Testament and not be a believer. Ancient history, obviously, you don't have to be a believer for that. So if, if I can find just one full professor of ancient history, classic, or New Testament in any university anywhere in the world who argues that Jesus never lived, I will eat a page out of my Bible. So he put that challenge out there. He had tons of people scouring. He got tons of mail, not saying I don't believe it, but just tons of mail from people going, I can't, Jesus lived. There's enough objective evidence to show that Jesus lived. And I imagine for um, John Dickinson, knowing that Jesus was an actual human person, like, Pontius Pilate, or like um, Mark Antony, or any of those other people back then that we have records of. To know that Jesus was an actual person is, a, is probably a very foundational thing in his faith. You might have it, something different that seemed very rational to you that has helped to build your faith and, and found giving you a foundation to keep growing on. So I'd like to encourage us that through, um, through this Ephesians chapter 3, as we're building the church, we do have rational sides to our faith. And I, won't, I would really ask you to take some time this week and think, what are the rational sides to my faith? What makes sense to me? Because it will give us strength when we're going through difficult times. It's great to be able to share with people the rational side of it. And um, it really, really is, I don't know, it's kind of fun for me actually to uh, think about the rational side of it. And I'll encourage you one step further is to not just think about it, but maybe talk to somebody else in church. Zoom them. Zoom, 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 I zoom sit outside their house six feet 12 feet apart whatever um, call them on the phone do something face to face with somebody else in church and just say hey here's here's part of my rational side to my faith what's part of your rational side and let's you know share those stories with one another so we got the two sides or we got the two yep the two sides right um, a little bit different in in 
different schools of thought or different themes here, I guess, but they're tying together a bit. So Paul really wants us to understand this history, right? He wants us to understand this history, this rational history, so that we can understand our rational faith. Um, so let's take some time this week to, to pray, six, eight seconds, right? Or, and think about the rational sides to your faith and talk about them with each other. Lord Jesus, thanks for this time. We thank you that you created our mind and that you love us and that you make sense to us in our mind. And please be with our brothers and sisters in many of those countries that don't have the freedom to uh, worship and talk about you and fear for their life every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, oh, oh. 